0: And welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. In the late 1960s, a young Gary Olsey accepted a job managing a restaurant called The Birchmere, which was located in a small strip mall in Arlington, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. The Washington, D.C. area was just on the verge of becoming what was to be known as the bluegrass capital of the world, so Gary Olsey's timing was just impeccable. 56 years and two locations later, the Birchmere Music Hall is now one of the most legendary listening rooms in the country. In this podcast, Katie Daly talks with founder and operator Gary Olsey, about the Birchmere's history and a new book, "All Roads Lead to the Birchmere: America's Legendary Music Hall," which Gary co-authored with Stephen Moore. Here's Katie Daly and Gary Olsey.
1: Um, I was I was raised in Kentucky and born and raised in Owensboro, Kentucky, and uh, one of seven, and. Uh, big family and uh, at a young age I don't know my teens I started playing guitar and uh, was
2: that for the music for to get girls to get girls
1: (laughs) well that was a trouble the guys that I hung out with and we played with they were it was natural to them you know I mean I had to work at it and uh, that's why I never never went into the business so to speak but um, we did play a, um, a square dance. They would uh, have a square dance band for 45 minutes, and then we would play for, for 20 minutes so people could do round dancing. And then uh, then the square, we'd do about five sets a night oh. at the Trail Away Recreation Barn. And, uh, but I was a teen. And then there's a stretch of road from... You cross a bridge out of Owensboro and go into Indiana, and there's an eight-mile stretch of road before you reach an Indiana interstate. And so Indiana didn't want that stretch of road, and Kentucky didn't want it. So it was sort of uh, bad land, wasteland. I mean, these gas stations were opening over there selling gas at 10 cents a gallon, and, of course, gas wasn't much more than that anyway, but, and uh, there were several all-night bars there. And uh, I played in those clubs where you start at midnight till 4 a.m. Wow. And I was 15, 16 years old. And, and what
2: kind of music were you playing?
1: Uh, country and blue, we didn't play much bluegrass. We didn't have banjo or anything, and uh, just popular stuff, what was Johnny Horton or Johnny Cash or uh, you, you know, the, uh, Hank Williams, that kind of stuff. And uh, I played mostly lead, I would do some singing, but uh, we had a boy named uh, Floyd Stewart would be the lead singer and my brother played bass and later drums. He was very good at both. And uh, so when I was 17, my mother passed away and uh my older, two older brothers one went to uh moved to indiana one moved uh, up up here to uh northern virginia and uh, because his wife was from up here and um so i went in the service 17 years old hmm. and uh which branch uh air force and uh it, it, uh, it was, it's the best thing I ever did in my life. Um, it, it taught me a lot of things. I mean, growing up a little redneck in Kentucky, you, know, you didn't know, a, I, I never knew, a, 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 I've lived in the segregated in the area, I, I never knew a black man by his name, I never knew, I never met a Jewish guy that I, or that I knew of I never met a BSer from New York or New Jersey. I mean, just right away, you, you you're you're consuming uh, uh, an education in people and in life, you know. And uh, but I, that was the best thing I ever did. It taught me discipline and a lot of things. And uh, I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, leaving on that was very hard to do. And um, But I never wanted to go back. It was after seeing the world. I got stationed in upstate New York, and then later on in Puerto Rico. And then I decided uh, this is not the life for me. Now, back in Kentucky, my dad ran a, um, a grocery store that his father ran and his father before him. Hmm. And in those days, corner grocery stores were it there was one every five four five blocks i mean it wasn't just like it i mean it's like something you would see in an old movie uh, there would be uh, he had a counter guy he had a butcher he had you know delivery guy the whole thing i mean and uh, then he started a barbecue restaurant on the other end of it because there was a general electric plant up the street and all the the girls that worked there would come down to the store for lunch and get them a rc and a moon pie and so he was selling barbecue and things like that and uh so that's how i i i learned the restaurant business and and, and that sort of thing so when i got out of service i was re- re- reading in want ads for up here because i was going to join my brother up here and, D.C. area, and I went to work for a people's drug store, and uh, worked for them for, well, let's see, that would have been, oh, 60, 1960, yeah. And I worked for them for a couple of years, managed a store up at Seven Corners for uh, a while, and there was a man that came in there, his son worked for me in the evening washing dishes and he lived in Lake Barcroft right by and he'd come and pick his son up every night. And we'd sit and have coffee and uh, talk. And he said, I, I just bought this little restaurant, it's a year old, he said, it's called the Burt's Mirror. And uh, he said, uh, if you'll come and run it, I'll give you you know some stock in it and stock options and. Uh, and uh, anyway, you managed the place for me. And I did it. It was a very successful little restaurant because it was, it was down in, uh, behind Shirlington. And uh, over Four Mile Run was an industrial park. And Shirlington had a lot of stores, but they didn't have a restaurant in Shirlington. So the lunch hour was packed. And then it it, was you
2: and the weenie beanie down the street. Oh,
1: yeah, it's still there. (laughs) Oh, I I go there once in a while. (laughs) I mean, you know, there have smoke with chili, it kill you. And uh, yeah, it was very successful. And then in the evening, all the young government workers that lived in the apartments all around there uh, would uh, Claremont apartments, and I can't think of the others, but. They would come down, have a beer, and watch sports, or you know, meet, get out of the house in the evening. You know, It was very successful. Well, then everybody discovered Dell City and uh, and uh, all all the Woodbridge, and they started moving out, and then the area really went down. And then a hurricane came and washed the little bridge out, so I wasn't getting any business. Any. <laughs> for the worst four mile run bridge out. I wasn't getting any business from that side. I started just adding music at night. I mean, I didn't even aim to, uh, and I had no dream of this. I mean, if I had planned this, it would have never happened. And uh, i put in this, uh, first guy that ever played was Stumpy Brown, played a Hammond organ, and he'd play on I don't know, it was Friday or Saturday night. And uh, then, uh, one, one day there was this kid that came in, often in Birdsmere, and he played guitar. And he one night, he brought his, evening, early evening, he brought his guitar in, was sitting in the corner playing. So I got a guitar, I don't know if it was mine or where I got it, we started playing and all of a sudden a crowd came. I mean, everybody started whatever just, and then we had a guy join us on bass and a guy join us on banjo and fiddle, and it I mean, that actually got popular, us doing that. So I built a little stage and we played one night a week, and uh, I could see that, well, maybe I should be doing music here at night because it's empty, the place is empty and hardly doing anything. But well, did you form a band, or was it completely informal? I tried we tried to keep it informal because we knew everybody, you know mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So the building next door got went empty, and I said, "Well, I'm going in the music business." So I tore a wall down and expanded to Berchmere. We had about uh, probably legal probably legally about two hundred seats. I think we see them about two fifty or three hundred, you know, but I think one of the most successful early bands was was none of the above, and which yeah. you which you remember know all those guys of Les McIntyre, Le- Dan Schiff,
2: yeah, Bob White, Bob Carol Nethery, yes, and they
1: had various banjo players. Terry Wittenberg happened mm-hmm. to have been one. Yeah, and they um, of course each one of them worked in an office somewhere, so. A, all the office people i mean it was it's a success i mean huge success packed the place you know and so i started checking around and there were in those days because of wamu and and uh and of course the, the the age group of the people that came out of the south after the war lived you know the old bluegrass stories and um uh, but uh of how people got into bluegrass here but I, went, I started checking around, and there were a dozen clubs playing bluegrass. So I would go to them, see how they were doing or what they were doing, because you know that was popular at the time, and uh, they had the worst sound systems and a light bulb on this light bulb on the stage, and uh, usually had the TV on on the bar and or a pool table or a bowling machine in the back and uh and i could tell people were trying to listen and enjoying the music but there was all this distraction well my favorite club in the whole world at that time was a cellar door i mean they had a little sign on the table quiet please in deference to the audience well i stole that from them and uh it took me a long time to figure out what in deference meant but <laughs> I just, I just, but, um, it means play nicely with others. Yeah, that's what it is. So, I um, I I got that, and uh, they had the cellar door had this great Bose sound system. So, I invested in a Bose sound system, and uh, as you know, I, I, then I started uh, going over to the Red Fox. Mm -hmm. and Katie Daly be working the door and uh, I don't know I never got a good seat I think that
2: was the only seat I ever got (laughs) (laughs) that was
1: yeah I never had a seat there uh,
2: for people who are a lot younger than we are the red fox was in Bethesda, Bethesda which was exactly the opposite side of the beltway yes and believe it or not people in those days did not drive around
1: the beltway no, no. oh
2: oh that's you know you went there if it's your aunt's christmas party or something yes but you were not really competitors
1: no no we could have split things and what well, we did for a while um it well in my early days i i i had that same discussion with a lot of club owners uh in, in D.C. and uh, nobody was interested in, you know, every, every, everybody uh, stuck to their own whatever. Well, Bluegrass is worse, the worst, uh, Bluegrass promoters and the and managers and bands are, are the worst than any other bands because they think the pie was only so big and that if you got involved, you uh, you were in their territory, you know. I wasn't accepted for a long time. I mean, I had to prove that the Berkshire was the best club there was, and and I did because, well, first of all, the if you remember the old fo- that the Red Fox, they had sure columns on the side of the stage, and they had the mixing soundboard on stage, and of course John Duffy was always messing with that, and and. Uh, it, it it was you know it was uh, terrible, but that you know just seeing that band that the, the, the first time just just blew me away. I mean I I hadn't heard anything like that, and uh, not since either. And uh, so, I mean I started talking to Mike Aldridge and befriended him, and then I played. Uh, Don Williams at the club one night, and Don and uh, Mike Mike came over and uh, Elise, his wife, and uh, he stood in the sound booth with me while we, while Don Williams played. And Don Williams only had about one record out then at that time or something; he wasn't very well known, and uh, but he was wanted to hire Mike because all of his records had uh, a dobro on them and so he and mike went in the back room and they sat in chairs facing each other and started playing and i had me a chair right right there you know the best chair in the house the best chair in the house i'd give a million dollars for that recording right now i mean it they sit and played together for an hour just don williams and mike and mike had was familiar with the songs, because it because they had the Dober on them, and he learned all of them, and and he told uh, he told uh, Don what he wanted, and uh, Don said I, I I can't afford that. I don't even play Pe- Danny Flowers at Danny led uh, uh, Don's band and whatever, and Mike and Elise still talked about moving to Nashville and. But Mike and I became real, real good friends, and uh, it was Akira, though, that talked to John Duffy and said, you know, you know, you need to uh, go play the Birchmere, because I had the sound system, I had lighting, I had quiet pleas that we enforced, first with Moose and then later with Pudge. My, one of my editors said, nobody uh, this doesn't make any sense these guys why, why are you putting this in the book for and i said you just don't know the birdsphere. sphere Every, everybody asks about pudgy you know so uh the scene came and said that duffy came by one day intimidating me you know in the daytime he was intimidating you know that but um he looked at it place okay well we'll play next saturday or whatever well, we had a line around the block. So they did a couple more Saturdays over the next few months. And then I said, uh, I was talking to Mike and then uh, Starling and all of them, they said, yeah, we ought to move over there, permanent, you know. So Duffy was a real loyal SOB, I'll tell you. And he, he said, well, we can't just walk out on Walt. We'll play every other Thursday. So they played every other Thursday for about, I don't know, maybe five or six months. And I, I said, fellas, this ain't no good. You, you gotta come over here and stay. And uh, I, they were making like about 400 bucks a night. And I said, I'll give you 800 bucks a night. And Duffy said, how are you gonna do that? I said, well, it's $2 to get in and I have a line around the block, so let's just make it $4 to get in. And, oh, you can't do that. You can't. I said, it's, that's my problem. So they, they, the band all voted, and they agreed, and they left Walt. They left the Fox. And uh, first night, we did not make the door. Oh, my God. <laughs> how how whole, short were you? Oh, my, I, me, I wasn't worried. I don't know why. It was odd that we didn't. And um, maybe there were a few people pissed off. It went up to two dollar. I don't know who knows. And but Duffy called me every every day. You, I think we made a mistake. I think we, I said John, trust me. You know, just just hang in there. Well, you know, next night, next Thursday, we made the door, and then and they did it for t- over twenty years every Thursday night, and that put me a pretty legitimate club, to say the least, because any band that was in town, any celebrity, they would come, you know, Linda Ronstadt, played there, would get up with them, or Emmylou, or, or whatever, and... Uh, Johnny Cash? Yeah, well, he didn't get up with them, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he came over. Oh, uh, no, what, do you was know... Marty what? Stewart? There's a, Yeah, that story's in there, the Kennedy Center people. It was John Prine and Steve Goodman, did a Johnny Cash show over at the Kennedy Center, and uh, so it was Prine and Goodman and Rodney Crowell, Vince Gill, a uh, whole lot of them um, uh, over there. And um, Steve Goodman called me and said, "Who's playing?" And I said, "The seldom seen." And he said, "Can we come over?" I said, "Who's we?" He said, oh prying and all." And I said, "I said, well, of course you can." And uh, the scene was playing and they took the break and I went in the back room and I told Mike I said listen oh and they they said um, Johnny Cash might come and uh, uh, Rodney Crow later told me that, he, that his back was really bothering me and, and or, you know whatever he didn't didn't make it but anyway they um i told mike i said all these guys are coming now you gotta certainly call brian and goodman up there you know and that kind of thing and uh there's uh duffy just i don't know duffy never was impressed with anybody or if he thought he was supposed to be he would take the opposite you know yeah. well so he's him. you know he don't care and uh, I kept sending Mike notes, you know. So um, there's two stories, one I remember and one that uh, Vince Gill remembers. But anyway, to say the least, Duffy finally got up first, I think, and Prine sang this song, the oldest living baby in the world. Well, you should have seen Duffy's face. First of all, if you couldn't, if Duffy thought you couldn't sing, well, he didn't even know why you was even trying. But you know, that's a whole. I think Brian could sing his ass off. it just didn't have a pretty voice. You know, neither did Norman Blake or, you know, the the things that Duffy would uh, didn't like people for. But uh, and and anyway, he got Vince Gill up there, and for some reason, Peter Rowan was happened to stop by. I don't know why, but. I mean, whether he was another doing a show or something, but he was there. So I remember Vince Gill and Peter Rowan and John Duffy trying to out-high each other. Well, Duffy, you know, blew their butts off stage, you know. And, uh, but it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of fun. Cash never didn't make it over, but he did, he did play the Birchmere uh, just before he died.
2: Well, I think word got around, number one, from the musicians, how well treated they were here with a good sound system. And, you know, the, your staff treated everyone extremely yes. well. Right. I mean, we want to discuss that in a minute. but uh, And then the word got around. I know I had come back from Maine and was flying into um, Reagan National Airport. Dan Ship said, I'll come and pick you up. And he said, I want to take you to this place. And that's the first time I, I ever went to so the Sherlington one was when Dan brought yeah. me over there. I don't remember who was playing, no. though. But anyway, well, the word got out, and and you got a lot of great press coverage. Washington Post, The Star, all yeah. of those. And then official Washington started coming. Yes, You had a lot of people you would see on the 6 o'clock news would be sitting in the birch mirror at 7 o'clock.
1: Yeah. So, starting with the enforcing the quiet please, we learned very early on the table would be, be noisy. You'd go over and you ask, ask him to hold it down, and you only did that twice, and the second time you told him, if I come over again, you're leaving. And there was always one guy, there was always one at a party and he he, didn't understand why his party wasn't paying attention to him instead of the band or whatever. And we'd ask the guy to leave, and he would leave. And his friends would always come and say, thanks a lot for doing that. And I'd say, well, why'd you invite the SOB, you know? I mean, so... But then and then a guy felt very comfortable in bringing his wife to the shows or, or that kind of thing. And... Uh, Nobody was doing that except except the cellar door and a few clubs, jazz clubs and things in D.C. I did. My rule with this whole staff was: look, when they walk in the door, they're working with us, not against us. They're here for the same reason we are. And I mean, a a lot of famous clubs had things like um, uh, a band menu. Well, that's that never made any sense to me. Here's a menu. It's what we got, you know, and or uh, bring your towels from the hotel. All right, what? Well, <laughs> you know, I would I would have towels and now. <clears throat> when when I built this, when we built this place, we've we've got showers, we've got uh, uh, washing and dryer, and uh, I don't know. Janice Ian in the book talks about she played every club in the world in those days that birchmere was the first place she ever saw anybody put a washing machine you know they're on a bus it it, i've seen i've I've went on the tours with the scene overseas and and i know it's not fun and i remember one night i went in the back room and we had an irish band playing there were six guys back there in their underwear all their clothes everything was in the washroom it was sheet so <laughs> and, and so I mean all those things I mean and I you know all the artists talk about its family I made I mean my staff has been with me for ever so it was coming to the birthday. they knew they were right at home I mean Jerry Jeff Walker wouldn't play anywhere else he played here a hundred and 45 times in over 40 years, Mm. you know. And uh, he wouldn't go anywhere else, didn't anybody, you know. But that's
2: part of your, uh, the experience you had as a young man, knowing how tough it was to travel or what it was like, rough in the clubs and stuff. Yes. And I don't know, did any of the ones you played in have chicken wire around the stage? Oh
1: yeah, yeah. We had
2: a few of those over there in Beltsville, uh, Maryland, and. Uh, so, down, down
1: on the head of the highway. And,
2: right. Yeah. So this really was... This wasn't a bar with music. This really has always been a listening club. Yes. And and the audience was also treated very well. You pick your chair by who was the waitress in that area because that was the one was your favorite or whatever. Yeah. But they were all good. Yeah. But starting with Moose at the door and uh, Pudge, uh, who were, I guess sort of the bouncers weren't they yeah well yeah uh, they never had to bounce no but, you know all they all they, had to well, really they were do.
1: intimidating us all know. the
2: you know that look that your mom gives you when you're in big trouble yes well moose could shoot you one of those and you know okay oh, yeah. i'm gonna yeah. stop that yeah uh, but they were great and uh everyone how, how many waitresses work here now or servers i guess would be the best
1: well I guess at the early the early club it was four and then six, you know. And my wife Linda at that mm-hmm. time um, uh, was was the head waitress. And and here's the other thing that uh, John Hartford was more impressed when I told him this story. But um, I would let them hire the new waitresses. Why would I want to interview them? I don't have to work with them. So. London the girls if they were if some we need a new girl they would interview she, Now
2: that's a tough bunch to go in front of I'll tell you <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes so uh, but yeah I, that, that was always important to me that uh, the crowd and the band and everybody was well you know one them not have a good experience that's what it was about and uh, so uh, then we moved to the second place and then uh, they tore they were tearing down that shopping center and it took a while and then you know I had well you always had uh John Caparacos and Mahoney those those firemen all you know I mean those guys were invaluable to me just helping me out and uh and uh, uh we opened down there and I had a a landlord and he was I just couldn't get along with, but of course we were there 15 years, but the last um, (laughs) lease uh, that I signed was a five-year lease, and it was just, I knew it was gonna kill me by the end of five years, and so I signed that lease, and a couple of years into it, I said, I'm gonna go back to Kentucky now. I'm, uh, you know, at the end of this lease, and uh, it got in the newspaper that the Verzmier was going to close and whatever. And uh, the city actually came to me and said-
2: City of Alexandria, mm-hmm.
1: okay. Came to me and asked me to look at this building because it it belonged to Kodak and it was a film processing plant. And um, so, um, they, uh, the Mercedes wanted to build a garage here or a service state garage and City didn't want any uh, anything to do with that, and different different companies wanted the building, and uh, the city didn't want that, and they didn't want me to leave, and so uh, I didn't know uh, how to do go about it or whatever. And so Jim Matthews uh, uh, went down to uh, North Carolina and bought the building for, got a good deal on it because it set empty for three years but they had a night crew and a day watchman and they ran the, the air and the water and things and uh, they had the building up for sale, very expensive. and, the, and uh, But they were afraid the city was gonna take it and you know, whatever, so they sold it to jimmy at a good deal and then i made a deal with jimmy that i would stay around five more years and run the place now that was 26 years ago i said (laughs) i'd stay five more years right and then in uh well the big turn of the club was first of all you know bluegrass started falling off and uh on the radios and such and uh they, You left WAMU and whatever, and that didn't help. And so the Cellar Door closed, and they went into Cellar Door Productions, and they were taking all the stars that they had raised, you know, the Gordon Lightfoots and all that, and they were taking them to Constitution Hall and Warner Theater and whatever. Mm-hmm. And they forgot about all their acts that only drew four and 500 people. And that was a blessing. I mean, I took total advantage of that. I was the only one in town that jumped on that right away. So I had Tom Paxton, and Ian Tyson, and Jerry Jeff Walker, and, and uh, Tom Rush, all these people, and, and I sort of, you know, I got them from the, uh, from the cellar doors closing. So that I took advantage of that. And uh, that's why I said, there's. I read an article once. The guy said there's no such thing as luck because there's all, all these doors open. It's just you choosing to go through them. So I, I can't say... Having
2: I, the nerve to do it.
1: Or have the nerve to do it. Yeah. You
2: know? I mean, I, I think of a lot of great ideas, but then I go, ooh, I, I don't know. Oh, this know. might happen.
1: You know, just don't have the backbone for yeah, it. And, and I I don't know. I just, you know, would, would make a decision. I, I'm I'm good at that. I ain't saying they are always good decisions, but... That's another thing you can't do: sit around and think about something for days and days because you're gonna, either you know you're gonna screw it up. (laughs) Now you don't have
2: any college management courses or no nothing like that. Hard knocks, school of hard knocks. And so if there's somebody out there listening to this, and you know, kid might want to be thinking about. Well, I'm going to open a venue. What kind of things do they have to know? Did you where'd you learn how to do contracts, or do you have somebody else do that? There's so much more to the club than coming in at night and
1: listening to the music. Um, that's a good question. I've never thought of it. Um, I it's well, in when when I started booking the club, the I didn't know how I could get phone numbers and call them up. And what do you want? And uh, and uh, and I could figure out how much I could charge and whatever, and in, in those days you didn't pay very much money for rent, you didn't pay much for insurance and all that stuff, so it was a lot easier for me to figure out that I, all I had to sell was a hundred tickets to pay this band and that sort of thing, and then of course I keep the volume from the food and drink and and. Uh, so it, it was just a step at a time. And then people started hiring management and whatever, and I, I uh, brought Mike, about 45 years ago, I brought Mike Dwork aboard, and Michael worked for Sam Lahamadud, who owned part of Cellar Door, and, and a big promoter, a oh. uh, national promoter. And Michael worked for him and he and i sat down and he said i can i can get you some acts and whatever and i and i think i would pay sam 10% or something and uh so that's when we started even expanding more doing doing international acts and uh, uh there's comedy and uh i mean i had to cl- uh, you know keep the club moving and uh, so he then, did some
2: uh, like the not reunions, but some of the older rock and roll bands. Uh, I can't think. Procol Harum. Sure. It's my husband comes to them every time <laughs> they're here, and there and there's some others. So, you know, the Birchmere is wide open in
1: acceptance of yeah. music. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, uh, we um, uh, when my when we we moved into this this building and all, I said to Jimmy, I said. Uh, you know what, we can't go in there unless we bring Michael with us. And he said, well, what would that cost us? And I, I gave him a guess a guesstimate, and he said, hell, we don't pay so-and-so the chef that much. You know, and I said, well, this is a little more whatever. And uh, I made a deal with Michael, and he came aboard, and that was a long time ago, but... but uh, He's been invaluable to me. Now he runs a book and office, and him, and, and uh, his his associate that's been working for him for back there for over twenty years. Uh, they're on the phone twenty four hours a day.
2: Well, so let me. This leads me to my next question: Is do you know which talent to go after, or does the talent maybe it's a combination of both, young or new or unknown talent apply? Well, audition, send in a tape. Yeah. I don't know what what it's called.
1: Well, first of all, we've been around long enough that the the agents trust us. They know what they get. They know they're not going to get screwed. Their their act's going to be treated and love it, love the place and want to come back and all of that. So we have a lot of agents that call us, but the agencies now all have three or four assistants. So that there we run into a problem. But uh, the, the, the the thing is that the bands oft, often ask for the Birch River. But right now is the hardest booking time I've been in forever. I don't mean because of COVID, but I mean over the last four or five years, there's six new places have opened doing music. And so it's a it's a seller's market now. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's 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 a lot rougher than it than it was even back back when I was learning it. But uh, we uh, we subscribe to uh, a, a newsletter called Polestar. You've probably I know you're familiar with Polestar. and they mail out attendance and every, I, we report every every show how many tickets we sell, how much they are, whatever. We report to uh, Polestar. And so we study that. And if an act is looking, an agent calls us about an act, we check it out on Polestar. It sounds interesting. And they're doing business and and there, whatever. We, you know, we'll give it a try. And we discover a lot of new talent by com- them being in bands that come in. And then they, they you know, they like the place. I, that's another thing. Like I said, I, I've always told the staff, you treat the opening act just like the the headliner, because the opener might be the headliner next year. Vince Gill, Lyle Lovett, both of them played here long time before they had a record out. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, one night, um, Guy Clark brought uh, this guy in, and he said, this is my buddy Lyle Lovett, can he open the show, and I said, sure. He killed the place, you know. There's not a bigger gentleman in the business no, than Lala. talented also. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, uh, it's all in the book. And the book is called All Roads Lead to the Birchmere. And you and Steve Moore wrote that together.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And uh, it's a very interesting read. Uh, if you've ever been here, even once, you'll recognize lots of people oh, in there. Yeah. Um, It'll bring back great memories. Uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's Thank a you. very interesting read. Well, uh, and I learned a lot of stuff in there that I didn't, you know, I thought, oh, I know that place. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I, I had to read the book to find out a lot of well, stuff. Well, that
1: was one of my goals. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the opening part of the book that, that I wanted a lot of people to know uh, Mickey Newberry, or uh, my my people, I'm I'm a big songwriter fan, and to me Newberry, there's nobody like him, and uh, and I wanted people to read about him and and to go on YouTube and discover him, because it's a gift, music's a gift, and and, and to me, there's nobody better. And then there's, you know, there's also, there'll never be another Danny Gatton, Mike Aldridge, Tony Rice. There'll never be another one. There's people around that can imitate them, but they don't have that soul. They don't have that feeling. And it's, it, it, I wanted to educate as, uh, and didn't want it about me or nothing like that. And the, uh, we've, every review we've gotten has been great. And they say, the thing they say about it is, the book which I like is, they call it a musical history of 50 years of, of, of music in this area. Well, let me ask you,
2: how did you do that? Did you go back through uh, notebooks full of Birchmere calendars or? Oh, yeah. How, you keep all of those.
1: Oh, I keep them all, Good yeah. thing you did. I mean, and, well, yeah, but you know what? There's so many people we left out of it. I mean, we're going to have to write another one, or I don't know. I I mean, you can't believe how much work it is to write a book if you've never written one. I see them in the movies. They just type them up, you know? And, uh, <laughs> That's because they only have two hours. <laughs> I spent three or four months just talking, like we're doing here, with uh, Steve and... Uh, he would open these doors, that's why I told him, you open all these doors, now I gotta go home at night and close them, you know. So it's hard to write it. I mean, he would send me a um, a chapter, and it would be 400 pages. And he'd say, Gary, this has got to go down to 100 pages. Well, that's the hard part of the writing a book is what to take out, put in, take out. And, um, he's got an he is steve has a great editor and and richard harrington was uh from the member richard from oh the yes po- yeah and richard was uh giving us some advice so it's available through amazon through amazon and where else uh book locker uh-huh. and a lot of stores now if you go on the web and and uh, and uh, look up all roads lead to the bird's mirror there's a Oh, there's some great reviews. There's some great uh, places to buy the book. I mean, I even have a an ad for a, a Japanese record store. <laughs> so the the book is is actually just blowing my mind. It's sold over uh, twenty thousand on Amazon alone, and they they are really championing the book now because they're surprised as I am. And there's a newsletter that goes out like Polestar does to music um, that goes to libraries and, and bookstores. They love the book. They wrote, they wrote a huge review, and they're really pushing at this issue. How about Bluegrass Unlimited?
2: The editor wrote a full page oh remembrance yes.
1: of yeah. the Birchmere talking about the well, book. Well, yeah, but because of this one newsletter, we may probably go into 200 libraries. And wow. I mean, it's it's... It, it's hard for me to believe. I mean, I just, well, we tried to mail one to everybody that was mentioned in the book or everybody that Steve interviewed. We're still mailing books and, and I just mailed one to, uh, to the newspaper in Orangeboro, Kentucky. So, you know, uh, I read an article, uh, they did. But we got, um, I want to get involved a little bit with, it with more with the uh, Hall of Fame the bluegrass hall of fame because they they he, well as you saw his review in bluegrass unlimited it was an amazing interview and uh, and and then you know we have well i mean even putting bob Schieffer's name on a book that that's not bad you know right and uh, it, it 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 turned out better than i thought Well, everything turned out better. You know, when I look around and I
2: see our friends or their businesses or their jobs, all of them are celebrating 40, 50. You know, we're all in the same. None of us ever thought uh, we would achieve the success that we've been blessed with. Yeah. Yeah. In our craziest
1: dreams, we never thought that. Well,. My next birthday, I thought it was going to take me a lot longer to get there than it did. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. You're going to be 80 years old I'm in gonna, August. I'm going to be 80 in August. Okay. That's tough. I feel like I'm 45. I, My 93-year-old cousin was in here last month. He lives down in Florida. He had his 60-year-old girlfriend with him. <laughs> That's and, why. And... <laughs> and uh, he just said, uh, "Gary, stay active." You know, that's all. And uh, which I couldn't be more active. You know, right.
2: Well, now uh, you've li- literally been shut down and semi-open, and all this pandemic stuff is- must have made you crazy. Well,
1: yeah, I I didn't shut down. I only two months, and uh, I didn't. I saw where all these businesses were. All their people were leaving, leaving town, leaving whatever. So I uh, kind of, uh, Michael uh, and I discovered a new form of musical of uh, cover bands and uh, local bands, and, which we, we're not familiar with. And they had no place to play. And, uh, but th- some of these cover bands are just fantastic and they have a following, people know them. And of course, the local bands that have been playing little bars and things—they—they they would bring people. I was limited on seating and space anyway, so I was able to hold my whole staff together. Uh, we didn't make any money, uh, but we had a lot of fun and stayed together. And and then uh, late late, uh, well, I, I took advantage of the uh, the those PPP loans and. Then later, I, uh, Virchmere got a nice grant from Shuttered Venues. So, uh, uh, I'm, I, like I said, I went for two, almost two years without drawing a paycheck, which, I'm, i doesn't bother me. I have everything in life I need and a wonderful wife now, and, and, uh, she has her own business, and, uh, I'm not worried about the money. I was more worried about the, my staff, and I worry about them. They're all my kids, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I was worried about my staff and uh, and keeping everybody together. And it worked. And as an important, the advantage now is we're way ahead of everybody because everybody else shut down. We continued to book and talk and move acts. We didn't just cancel everything. We moved moved them and and and, and uh, so Michael's got a great schedule going into the uh, summer and then fall. And you got to what a thing about this job, your job, is you got to think on your
2: feet. Yeah. You've got to be able to. Oh yeah and make quick decisions. Right. And, and, and whatever. You know uh, one thing I enjoyed about the book was the operation and people will say, "Well, why do I have to? Uh, why does he have to call a number?" And we, you know, all of that is explained in detail: yeah, yeah. the operation and and all the logic behind it. Yeah. Well, the things the, that customers don't think
1: about. Well, the, you know, they there's still some people that don't call. They, you know, I don't call a number. I'm an up delicatessen, and what? Well, they don't understand that. Um, well, it's first come, first serve. We don't. I do not take reservations because you wouldn't get here till showtime you'd go somewhere and eat I mean, so you're forced to come and eat and we do have a great menu and a great cook and a great kitchen and uh, but anyway they uh, they so I don't take reservations for that reason and secondly I've always said well first come first serve you get to see so they didn't understand if we opened that door and let everybody just walk in, the wait staff wouldn't be able to move for a half hour or an hour. And we have to feed 500 people in an hour and a half. And McDonald's can't do that, but we can. and But it's because the number thing is more of a pace pace seating. and uh, that, that, and, I, and I don't know why people don't understand that, you know. It will all become clear when they get their copy of "All Roads
2: Lead to the Birchmere." All right. <laughs> now we said you have your 80th birthday in August. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're going to take your cousin's advice and keep moving and keep busy and all that, or or have you planned a retirement? I know no, you always I, say five years and then you stay another hundred. I oh
1: no no I I don't mm. plan on retiring I don't I don't I mean. I, who's got a job that they, they lo- love getting up in the morning and going, there? you know, I, mean,
0: I don't have a job. And that was the Birchmere's founder and operator, Gary Olsey, talking with Katie Daly. More about the Birchmere, including their current performance schedule, can be found at www.birchmere.com. And Birchmere is spelled B-I-R-C-H-M-E-R-E, birchmere.com. The book, All Roads Lead to the Birchmere, America's Legendary Music Hall, is co-written by Gary Olsey and Stephen Moore and published by BookLocker.com. It includes 250 previously unpublished photographs and is over 500 pages long. The book is available at a number of retail outlets, including Amazon.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and katiedaily.com As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. And in news of the day, on March 10th, 2022, the Virginia State Assembly has issued a Senate resolution, resolution number 65, congratulating the Birchmere on the occasion of its 55th anniversary and expressing their admiration for the Birchmere's contribution to cultural life in Northern Virginia. And we here at Bluegrass Stories extend our congratulations as well for a job well done.